0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk Podcast. Good to have you back with us. It's good to uh, have a chance to continue these discussions as we work through this series, Real People of the Faith. And I, I don't know if that is more true of any of our characters than it is of the couple we look at today as we continue to move deeper into the story of the New Testament. We felt like a good place to spend a little time is the primary couple, I guess, of the New Testament, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents. And as we move into this discussion, we do so with fairly limited amount of resources. The Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about their background and almost all of their story is is really centered on or revolves around the the birth of Jesus, which you would expect. I guess to start with Michael, the thing that is most amazing is this idea that we should probably unpack a little bit, that God has parents, Hmm. that Jesus Christ, the Savior, has parents, that we talk about Joseph and Mary as those who raised the Messiah, the Son of God, which is an outstanding and, and amazing claim.
1: Yeah, and by the way, the New Testament doesn't hide that. It actually puts it out there, the, is this the son of Joseph Is this, uh, and so I think we, as we come to the scriptures, find that, that they really emphasize for us these early writings of how significant that was even to the earliest disciples. That Jesus was a person who came, uh, from, uh, this family in this particular place and time. And it was for that very same reason that people were so shocked and surprised as Jesus taught the things that he taught and lived the life that he lived. And then ultimately, uh, revealed himself as the Son of God in, in the way that God acted uh, through and in him. So, yeah, Clint, I think that that is striking, and I think it's also striking that the Bible doesn't, in many cases, try to gloss over the difficulty of life that this couple dealt with. I mean, it's very candid and honest about the fact that Jesus' childhood wasn't stress-free, it wasn't worry-free,
0: Yeah, I think, you know, again, to push that theme a little bit, not only is it astounding to try and wrap your head around the fact that Jesus has parents, but they're very ordinary parents. They're not in a palace, they're not royalty. We know very little of Joseph's side of the equation. He's of the lineage of David, he ends up in Bethlehem to be registered. He is a carpenter by by trade or by training, and that's really that's really probably most of what we know. We also know that sometimes he's present in the story at age twelve when Jesus is twelve Joseph is present by the time Jesus begins his ministry at about thirty. Joseph has passed away. We know nothing about the the particulars of that story but by and large, we have to assume that Mary and Joseph lead a very typical life for that period, which would have been not poverty, perhaps, but certainly not wealth, probably some moments of hand to mouth, probably some lean times, probably you know moments where things are going a little better, but certainly they're they 're mundane they' they're, they're faces in the crowd, and yet we remember them for this incredibly astounding fact that they raise, in Mary's case, by genetic and birth, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but in Joseph's case, by example and by parenting, none other than Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, and I think as we start this story, it's worth really... Honing in because in a way, in a strange way, Mary and Joseph sort of have a shared biblical element to some of the prophets that we talked about, and what I, and even John the Baptist really and what I mean by that is the scripture doesn't really tell their backstory. it doesn't really give a, a history of their own childhood, of their own parents, of the, the choices and places that they had made and gone to in their lives that brought them to the moment of being met and their lives being changed by God. Clint, really we come into their story when it gets diverted by God's story. And I think that is a common theme in the scripture that it's that scripture is always pointing us to the work of God in the world and it is at these critical intersections that we see it come into play into these individuals' lives. And so, it's striking when we talk about someone like Joseph, the honest truth is what we know about Joseph's life is almost encapsulated in a tiny section of his full life, uh, however long that actually was. And yet that is always the purpose of Scripture, is not to tell the whole story of that person, but to to show us how in that person's life God's story is encapsulated.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said, Michael. I, I would Say only that scripture delves into people's stories really only to the extent that they connect to jesus' story, and so the the Bible isn't particularly interested in questions we'd love to ask where did Joseph come from? What kind of person was he? What did he do? You know we get the sense that he isn't a man of integrity. Mm-hmm. We certainly have to assume that God makes a choice according to those to those parameters but when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, there's that line that says he was going to divorce her quietly. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that he, he wasn't vindictive or angry perhaps is wrapped up in those words, and that seems reasonable. But really, the Scripture's primary interest is is only telling his story as it connects to Jesus' story, even, amazingly enough, when that connection is as significant as the person on earth that Jesus would have likely called you know, dad, father, and the person who would have raised him, who presumably taught him to work wood and do carpentry and, and finish his first project with him and you know, gave him lessons and lectured him and all of those various things, which would be fascinating to know. And unfortunately, we're only left to speculate at what that must have been like. But again, I, I think to our initial point, the idea that Jesus had a parent, like that Jesus grew up in someone's house, that he ate at the table with them day in and day out, that he traveled with them to mm-hmm. Jerusalem, that, that they, even as his spiritual reality is being shaped by God and the presence of God and, and the Holy Spirit, that his, in many ways, his earthly reality is being shaped by these two people and the tremendous, um, task to which God entrusted them to raise Jesus until he's ready for his ministry.
1: Yeah, and we may miss some of the significance of that, so I really want to just pause, though it may seem obvious when I say it, that there's a sense in which that commonality, that real people-ness of these two individuals is really an amazing part of God's salvific story, that Jesus— was born into a home with a man who had a common job, right? Who worked, a, by all accounts, uh, maybe a stable work, but certainly not one which was ever going to make you rich, which was never going to advance you in the society in which they lived. And yet, it is in that place that God chooses for his son to be formed into what it means to be human, right? Is that Jesus knew something about what needs done to bring home food to a family, what it, what needs done to keep sibling rivalries from breaking out, right? We would love to know what that house looked like with growing kids, right? And and Scripture doesn't tell us those stories, but the fact that, that we know that Jesus was embedded in this family in a real way is in many ways good news for all of us who are embedded in families, who work jobs that, that need to be done, some of those jobs which we don't always love. And there's a sense in which God's salvific plan is, is really made big in the story of Jesus because Jesus is actually embedded into that same story that we share.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting detour, Michael, but it would be a fun Novel to write or to read, or even a fun sermon maybe to preach. the The reality that at at Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary, of course, were overwhelmed and it had to be just simply astonished at the work of God and what's happening in their midst. But then life happens, right? Um, if you're Protestant, you read a reference to other kids being born. They're making a living, Mary's putting food on the table. Mm. And as as we do in our own lives, every birth is this incredible, amazing moment where you think everything is going to change. And then two years later, you're changing a diaper and you're picking up (laughs) toys. And and the miraculous part kind of gets pushed to the background a little bit and they just go on with life. And yet I, I have to think that it would be a fun thing to imagine those moments where they must have looked at Jesus as they do in the story Luke tells where he's 12 years old and he's in the temple right. teaching and and his parents must have had those moments where they looked at him and they remembered oh yeah the, he's he's that he he's our son and he's that he's he's the incarnation he's the presence of god he is both like us and not like us at all, and maybe you see a little vestige of that when um, Jesus is with his mom at the wedding, and she says, "You know, they're out of wine," right. and he says, "You know, that's not that's not my thing," and and yet then he proceeds to do this this miracle, the first of his miracles, and there must have been those those moments where they just looked at each other and kind of remembered the. The re- unimaginable privilege and and responsibility that visited their house.
1: Yeah, and Clay, I don't want to muddy the waters here, um, so I've got to say, um, just we, we promised to tell you if we were ever gonna cross outside the scriptural landscape, and th- this is not in the scripture. But if you've ever wondered what did it look like when Jesus was young, because we have just such sparse stories of that time period. There are several writings that were in the early church which did tell stories about that. One of my favorites is from the Gospel of Thomas, which was not included in the scriptures because the early church sifted through that and said it wasn't reliable enough to make it into our book, and so that's got to be said. But there's stories that were written about Jesus doing miracles as a child and, and doing things that that were just in the town Absolutely remarkable, even as a young man. And so though they didn't make scripture, I think they point us to other people have had those wonderings. Um, even in that time, people were wondering what would have it been like for, for this child, the son of God to be born into a normal family and, and, and to grow up in a town with other little boys and girls. And what would have that experience been like? And the fact that that was written then, about the miracles that Jesus did as a child, though it didn't make our scripture, I think does remind us that the early Christians were aware of what that meant, right? Mm -hmm. That it was significant that God chose humble people for his son to be raised. And that is really good for someone who is in the midst of parenting young children to have that hope that you know even God can work in the midst of parents who we know we don't have it all figured out.
0: Yeah. Somewhere in the office, I have a book called The Book of Jesus, which is just a collection of writings and poems that people have written through the years about Jesus. And one of them, well, there are actually two from the same author, 25 Questions for Mary and 25 Questions for Joseph. And it was Mm -hmm. things like, did he ever cry mm. did, did did he did you ever see him heal did did he ever comfort you and and those kind of questions that in general you could ask of any child but specifically only of that child and and it is um something we take for granted that i think it is good to remind ourselves what must it have been like to occasionally remember if not always that none other than the son of god was sleeping under your roof <laughs> i mean it's 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 not something that one can get their head around
1: yeah, I try to—I'm looking here at the beginning of Matthew. We really have very few gospel stories at the beginning of Jesus' life, which is why when we come to Christmas season, the texts that you hear read are all familiar. It's because yeah. the Bible just doesn't have that many uh, texts that include the story. And what's, what's fascinating to me is, ostensibly, Joseph is engaged— there's some timeline there of what, when he's looking forward to being married to his wife, when he um, becomes aware uh, of the fact that she's pregnant, it, that he's resolved to himself that that he's going to divorce her but do it in quiet, That which speaks to that integrity, and that's when the angel shows up. And as we know from our uh, other Old Testament biblical stories, when angels show up, serious God things are are being announced. They're happening. And he's told, um, don't be afraid, take Mary as your wife. Um, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And boom, immediately, normal, regular process, what you thought was, you know, sort of planned out and laid ahead of you, has now been upended. And Joseph has got to be reeling in that moment with what does this mean?
0: Yeah. And I assume, continued to ask that question for all the years yeah, that, right. that he lived, right? And Joseph, we have such minimal things. Now, When as we move to Mary, um, we get slightly more information biblically, mm-hmm. but historically and theologically, mm-hmm. we have a lot more attention, which yeah. makes sense, of course, because there is this physical-biological connection where Joseph is the the father by proximity and by relationship, Mary is literally the mother of Jesus. And before we get there, Michael, maybe just a word along the same lines, but geographically rather than relationally, one thing that we might also mention is that Jesus has a hometown, that Joseph and Mary have a place they live. And this place, Nazareth, is a small, it's a backwater it's not particularly well thought of, from what we can tell. In fact, um, there's still not a, agreement or consensus on where it was. There, right. It's not been, it's not been agreed upon that it was located in any particular place. Some have argued that it wasn't actually a town. I, you know, that's certainly not a biblical case. But we don't even agree on where yep. it, it was. So insignificant that it, it, we don't even know where it was. And yet, Jesus grew up there again—not Rome, not Jerusalem, not Palace, just probably a, a hut or a stone, you know, clay house in a very small, out-of-the-way, somewhat backwardish kind of town. And um, we maybe underestimate how rural that part of the story is. And so it's interesting to think not only did he have a home, but that home was located in a community. And as we all know, communities we grow up in have an impact on, on who we are and who we become, and so interesting to think of that. So then let's let's kind of narrow our focus here for a minute, Michael, and think about Mary. And again, this is the broken record when we come to so many of these characters, We don't know a great deal about her, probably a relatively young girl, almost certainly a teenager at the time when the angel makes an appearance to her. Um, She's a young maiden. People argue about the word maiden, whether or not it also does or doesn't mean virgin. I think the simple answer on that is that in Jesus' day, maiden assumes Virgin, those are a synonymous. You know, I don't find it profitable to argue over that because it's simply the text assumes some things that I think we can assume as well. Um, Related to Zechariah, Elizabeth is a kinswoman that makes Jesus a cousin of John the Baptist. We've talked about that. Um, I think you know the initially, Michael, the most interesting conversation about Mary is, and I I think it's important to say because it can be assumed that she has no choice, Mm. but I think it's important, and and feminist theology has helped us here, I think, in helping us see in the text that Mary is a participant. She's not simply a vessel that God uses because God wants to. It, it. She has a, a moment of of what we might call choice or agency. She partners with God in in the creation. You know, there there's this moment where the angel explains to what's going to happen to her, and then she agrees or she she feels joy in that. She rejoices in that, and I and I think that's important because uh, otherwise, you know, she's somewhat of a uh, slave certainly isn 't the right word, but somebody without a choice
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i I think it's important that we understand that God does not dictate mary 's life but gives her an invitation to which she responds
1: yeah I think it's it's really it 's a fruitful place to spend a little bit of time if we 're going to talk about Mary. Uh, I would encourage you, wherever you are, maybe just make a mental note. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 is a really um, deep sort of collection of, of this early time for Mary. And what, what's fascinating, Clint, is this angel comes, the first thing that's said is, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And it's it's a powerful way to initiate that conversation because – Mary is, from the very start, named as being the one who is favored, the one who's given a gift. And you might not know this, that in the history of Christianity, Mary has been remembered in different ways theologically, and there's a lot of threads that we're not going to have time to trace, and quite frankly, um, many may not be interested. But in the Roman Catholic Church, Mary has a very particular place not shared in the Reformed churches, certainly post-Reformation. And one of the things I think that Reformed churches, maybe we struggle to to name the significance of Mary, Uh, some of it was intentional, some of it unintentional, I think, is is the fact that Mary represents how seriously God has determined to be with God's people. God has taken His uh, intention to to encompass all of his love for all humanity for all time by becoming human in God's willingness to to come and profess favor upon this young girl who lives in an insignificant place in Mm -hmm. in a relatively insignificant family. As best as we can tell, this encounter is what transforms Mary's life forever. And yet, in, in the midst of this, Mary is able to say Surely what is one of the most courageous statements in all of scripture, here I am. Let it be with me according to your word. Let it be with me. That it's a, it's a kind of response to God's gracious gift that says, I am ready to be part of what you have proclaimed as favor for me. And I, I just point out that when Mary says these words, she's repeating words, here I am that are spread throughout the entire Old Testament, and these significant encounters, God with Abraham, God with Moses, uh, in each of these moments, the response is so often, here I am, God. I'm I'm here. I'm I'm listening. I'm your servant. And that's exactly what we hear from this young woman. And so, even though we're on the reform side of the fence and, and we have less theological space for Mary and the significance of that. I think we we can name and own the fact that Mary represents a courageous woman who represents not only God's commitment to to take humanity in all of our senses, but also God's desire to use those people who are willing to show up and say, God, here I am.
0: Yeah, and there's a, a real subtle reinforcement of that, Michael, early in that story the angel says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, in that's in Luke's gospel, and, and Luke sort of centers on the name Jesus. But in Matthew's gospel, we get that text you may know from Christmas. He will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. And if you, if you put those things in conversation, Mary is the first one that hears the announcement that is then through her shared with all people. She is the forerunner of the the herald of what god is doing that the messiah is to be born and the first one to hear that is a teenage girl out in the sticks and again it just that that kind of idea hangs over the whole story and mary's response to that is incredible you may know this uh, has been put to music in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 following, there is a poem that Mary utters, and it begins, My soul magnifies the Lord. It's been put into music. It's called the Magnificat. You've probably heard it sung, or at least um, you may want to Google it if you haven't. It's beautiful music, but in the text itself, just poetic, um, a celebration of what God has done and what God promises to continue doing, and um, incredible depth and and theology and his story, history and faith from this young girl. It, it's very impressive, and it's an incredible passage that she gives as she as she celebrates what God is going to do and even her role in it, Um, very much like Miriam's song in the Old Testament and those kind of moments where almost lyrically what God is doing is professed and celebrated.
1: And this is one of those places where the gift of multiple witnesses to the life of Jesus is so significant because if you only had the book of Luke and and you read that as the sole testimony to Jesus Christ— It is, in some ways, a rosy picture is not what I mean to say, but it's a very positive image of this proclamation. There's like maybe a few sentences where the weight of what God is proclaiming is sort of hanging out there. And then when Mary says, here I am, this beautiful song, she's the blessed above all. She's the first to see God's full plan for humanity. And if you read Luke, that's it. But we know from Matthew Right, that Joseph is seriously thinking, I may need to dismiss her, and I. Right, so we get the sense from Matthew that this has serious social implications for this young woman, right? And we already get a sense in that in that small detail that Mary's choice to to say to God, "Here I am, let it be done as you have said," um, that. Will impact her for the rest of her life. That that puts her in a position where she was with child before she was with Joseph, and that's known in her community, and that has significance.
0: Yeah, and to further that, in the Matthew text, uh, they they then run. You know, they find out that Herod knows where they are, and so uh, in the midst of this celebration of new birth, and not not only a normal child, but the Messiah has come now. They're on the run, and um, right away a sign that this family, though they live under divine blessing, is not under any particular divine protection. They, They are vulnerable to the threats and the problems and the hatred of the world. Ultimately, we'll see that in the cross, but we see it foreshadowed even in Jesus' family. It's less true in Luke, but there is a moment where they take... Jesus to the temple, and there's a man there named Simeon, and he prophesies. And then he says this to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul, too. And this foreshadowing of the transition we make, you know, we really see Mary in the beginning of the Jesus story and at the end. Right. And at the beginning, there is primarily celebration, but then we have to remember that this same woman who delivered the Son of God into the world looks upon him yep. as he suffers and dies on the cross and Here we have Luke connecting the stories with this short phrase, and a sword will pierce your own soul too and the The pain of a mother, even of faith and of of hope and promise, seeing the loss seeing the 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 death of her son and we see, I think, in even those two short vignettes of Mary's life, the incredible emotional journey mm-hmm. that that must have been present in lots of ways, but those may be most encapsulated.
1: Yeah. I, I'm going to make what seems to probably be an absolutely obvious statement. Mary is a real person. Mary was a real person. Mary's not the plastic figurines that we put out in our yards at Christmas. She's not the nativity uh, person that we have on our mantles. Mary has been captured in history in a way that for sometimes I think it's easy for, or sorry, it's difficult for us to access truly the reality. Mary was a person. So, like, you know, when you're when you're 30 diapers into to changing um, your little one, right, and someone comes to you and says, hey, do you know this, and do you know this, and do you, do you know this? I mean, the, the parents, out of frustration, yeah, I know that, and way more, right? Like, uh, that song that we have at Christmas, Mary, Did You Know? Uh, lots of people like that song, and I don't mean to dismiss it, but like, Mary knew a lot more than she wanted to know about being the mother of the Son of God, and yet it is this woman— who so courageously as a young person uh, aligned herself with what God wanted to do in her life that then follows that journey like all of us do, having no clue what the arc is going to look like, right? And that emotional arc you talk about, Clint, there's no way that girl in that moment at that time could imagine what laid ahead. And yet as she faithfully travels along, as she is heartbroken, as she as her soul is pierced, in the midst of that, she models for us what true faith looks like. Faith in God, not just when it's easy, um, even faith that goes beyond one moment of you know extreme courage, but a faith that lasts a lifetime of discipleship and trust. And, you know, I think it's rightly then that the church has for for thousands of years after, held Mary in high regard.
0: Yeah, so you think if she's a teenager at the birth, thirty-three ish years later, you know she's in her mid to late forties, and this is the same woman, right? The the young girl who gives birth, the older, wiser woman whose soul is pierced, but then who sees that give way to what Jesus has done. It's fascinating that there's no Mm post-resurrection Mary, the mother of Jesus, story. And when we think of her story, we almost always think of it in conjunction with Christmas. Yep. Because that's the nicer part of the story. Right. And uh, certainly Mary has, without any reservation, earned a place in... the the characters of faith that we look to and celebrate. Um, Michael, you, you touched on it earlier, but maybe it would be interesting to some extent quickly to unpack what Protestants do with Mary, specifically Presbyterians. So theologically the birth of Jesus raises some troubling questions from the catholic perspective specifically what do you do with sin what what do you do with this idea that mary as a real person a would be a sinful person and how could you how can you reconcile a sinful human housing but through pregnancy the incarnate perfect son of god and so the the catholics have at times in their history backed off and made a, a special kind of dispensation for Mary I that know. she was um to some degree without sin or her sin was, was dealt with early or some way of getting around the question. Protestants have not typically worried about this. We have said that she was a person like all persons and yet God used her in this incredible way without any real trouble because that's what God does. God finds a way and found a way with Mary. The other difference, probably major difference as we look back on Mary's life is that there are reference to Jesus having brothers and sisters and Protestants have generally read that literally as though Mary and Joseph had other children the catholic church in order to preserve the sort of perfection of mary has done that sexually as well and said that mary remained a virgin the mm-hmm. ever vir- maybe you've heard the ever blessed ever virgin mary in a catholic prayer and they take that literally that they would read that reference to brothers and sisters as as meaning cousins or some kind of extended family and not literal siblings brothers and sisters and you know that that's strange for us it's a little odd mm-hmm. for protestants but it really has to do with this idea of trying to honor mary above other people of yep. of occupying or or carving out a space for mary to occupy that is somehow a step over the rest of our human experience to make room for god you know, obviously, a Catholic is going to find that version of the story more compelling. As a Protestant, I find Mary being ordinary more mm. profound. But I just say that to know that his, historically, Catholics and Protestants have done some different things with Mary in regard, in and we could talk about lots of them, but those are probably the major two.
1: Yeah, I might only add to that, Clint, because if you're joining us, you may know of the Hail Mary, mm. which is a pretty significant uh, prayer, probably the most well-known prayer that isn't directed to Jesus. Um, out in the a larger Christian church, the certainly the Orthodox and Reformed churches, and there's a in non-Reformed traditions, there's a comfort with praying to God, but doing so through intermediaries. And Mary is sometimes that intermediary. So, when someone says their Hail Marys, what the Catholic Church does, as I understand it, they they can see that not as ultimately praying to Mary, but rather asking Mary, who's with Jesus right now, to put in a good word with Jesus, right? To say, hey, in my brokenness, Mary, would you put in a good word with Jesus? And The Reformed tradition has always said, you know, the thing that Jesus did was open the throne of grace to all, that we don't send our prayers through anyone else, uh, we send them directly to the God who knows us and loves us. But I I, I think I I don't want to quickly rush past the fact that that the Christian church, our larger extended family, has had a special place for Mary, and one of the upsides of that is I do think Mary provides a really beautiful, inviting image for young women as to what faithfulness looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a young girl, Jesus uh, lives a life as a male in his time and place. And Mary, in some ways, portrays faithfulness as a woman who was blessed and favored by God. And so, I I think there's, there's a beautiful meaning in that. Jesus is not Uh, Sorry, that Mary is not the same as Jesus. She doesn't occupy the same theological place. But I do celebrate, certainly with two um, daughters, I celebrate a woman who who represents faithfulness. She represents the best of what it means to care for. She represents what it means to be a strong woman of faith. In many ways, I think uh, we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, to use the, the phrase, we can keep what is an amazing story of an amazing woman of faith, and and we don't necessarily have to incorporate all of the things that the Reformers found troubling to yet see in Mary a beautiful exemplar of God's grace and love.
0: Yeah, so two follow-ups on that, Michael. The first is, is just kind of a funny, practical thing. You may know the song Ave Maria, which is a prayer to Mary, and it— has made its way into Presbyterian Christmas Eve services occasionally, but it probably shouldn't and when it does it's usually because somebody really wants to sing it and a pastor says, Well okay, we'll all just look the other way but it it's not something it's it's a place in which our different understanding has been kind of practical right it, it's a it's one of those places where and it's probably less true than it used to be, but i I studied under pastors who said that will never happen in a Presbyterian church, and yet it does sometimes. <laughs> Secondly, and far more importantly, as we talked in the Old Testament, um, as we worked our way some through some of those characters of the faith, this idea that when the story of God is told, there are these moments where God is directive, where the angels come, and And God gives very clear and explicit instructions. You're going to have a baby. You're going to name him Jesus. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. And then there are these other massive parts of the story where it feels like the characters are left Mm -hmm. to work it out. Imagine the trust placed in Mary and Joseph that God would say, I'm going to send my son to you. You take him to Nazareth, you you bring him up, you teach him the faith, you teach him the prayers, you read the scripture with him, you show him a trade, you teach him to be a good man, and then at some point, I'm going to do even more incredible and amazing things with him and through him. But it's those gaps, you know, we read that Christmas story, there's no reference to God Taking them to the inn, right. they they end up in the inn. It's not the birth they expected. Right. The, there's no. They get warned in a dream. They but they're in real danger from Herod. And I, I think the the beauty of that, Michael, is that that's the way life feels. Right. There are these clear moments where we have guidance from God, and we have the grace of Christ, big and bold in life, and then. There are so many other moments where we're left to kind of make our way through the details. And the trust which God places in Mary to to do that with the living Christ, literally the living Christ, is astounding. And I, I cannot think of another character of whom that could be said in the entire scripture. I mean, Mary is unique in that. There are lots of, of characters, of course, trusted to do the will of God. But that kind of partnership, that kind of, of cohesive working together is, I, I think, amazing. And, and maybe Protestants in our, in our rush to kind of not overdo the theology of Mary have underdone it. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe sometimes we've underappreciated the staggering role that she plays.
1: Yeah, I don't want to overstate my case, but I think in the effort to do away with theology that we thought was suspect, we lost some of the scriptural view, which is so plain. And I do think that as as we look at this, the thing about Mary that, that really stands to me as as being just leagues apart is the fact that that this is a woman who— was willing to allow God to work in spectacular ways. She was literally the closest to Jesus and therefore to God that anyone has ever been or could imagine. And yet she is normal. <laughs> right? And and the truth of that, if you will just let it uh, rest with you for a moment, can can be life-changing. The fact that that God when God means I am with you, when God says Emmanuel, God literally means it. This woman who God did an astonishing thing through and with was a real person. And so that's good news for every real person because God is capable of doing that with us. It won't be in the same way as Mary, but but it's not, Scripture intends to show us this not on accident to say that God's grace and love is far more expansive than we tend to think it is and and oftentimes we write ourselves or we write other people out of the story and and Mary is just one of those people who stands she was the closest you could possibly get and and yet she was normal she was real and so everyone who is normal and who is real has good news in in that gift that we see in her
0: yeah that that mixture of the absolute profound and the absolute mundane yeah that she delivered the son of the living god and then she had to figure out how to feed him right. and then she had to figure out why is he crying and and that 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 god who could have chosen any young woman on the planet at the time for whatever reason chooses her as the favored one and and then works with her to bring about this incredible thing that will change the world and change the history of the world and and she takes her role in it willingly and amazingly and so um yeah we maybe underdo mary and and we should give her more credit sometimes than we do it's a fascinating Story is it story the right word? She's a fascinating character, even though we wish we knew a lot more about her. We know enough to be astounded, which is generally all the Bible is interested in telling us is enough to to be amazed. And so, in this case, I hope that will be true for you. We very much appreciate you listening. We hope there's something in this that uh, strikes something, strikes a chord with you, does something, gives you some information. If it raises questions email them to us, send them to us, Facebook, email, whatever, give us a call, and uh, we'd love to continue the conversation, but we appreciate the time and are grateful to be with you.
1: Yeah, and you know we're grateful uh, we've had a lot of new people listening recently. Uh, we're grateful to have you join us. Uh, thanks for taking time to join these conversations. If there's someone who you think might be interested in learning a little bit more about Mary, share this with them. Send them an email, a text message, of course, subscribing and uh, sharing on Facebook all these ways help others find it. Uh, we will continue to uh, premiere these on Facebook at 9 o'clock Central Standard Time every Wednesday. And uh, that's a great place as well, Clint. Uh, we are there every time that that comes out. And so if there's a question in real time, drop that in there and we'd be happy to have a conversation with you. So all that said, thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week as we continue The Real People of Faith.